space, the final frontier. This is the episode about Star Trek, the granddaddy of all cinematic universes. Star Trek sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Why are we even doing this? (laughs) The granddaddy? That is the worst possible thing you could use to describe the Star Trek universe. No, no, it's it's correct because only your grandparents like it. We live in the era of the fan. Now more than ever, our voices are heard, and we have a lot to say. With decades of continuity across all of our favorite fictional universes, this podcast is here to take you through what is, what isn't, what could have been, and what is simply canon fodder. very different episode of Canon Fodder. My name is Ed, and I'm joined in the virtual studio today by a friend of the podcast, Kevin. Kevin knows a hell of a lot more about Star Trek than Anthony and Matt, and that's why he's with us today. So welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Ed. I'm really excited to be here. Excellent. So let's get started right away. We're going to be talking about Star Trek today. And what is your first memory of Star Trek? Watching... The Best of Both Worlds. Uh, I couldn't tell you if it was a rerun or it was the original air, but just watching it with my parents and just being absolutely kind of blown away by the whole thing. It's the, the Borg were terrifying for a young child. And uh, I was immediately hooked. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I love that episode. Because Next Generation was just a little bit before our time. So it was a show that we had to mostly come to through reruns. Exactly. But uh, fortunately, that there's never been a lack of reruns of the next generation there. So, yeah, you you are right. So, Star Trek is the granddaddy of cinematic universe. It's over 50 years old, contains 13 films, nine TV series, and as of this past week, 780 TV episodes. So there is plenty to talk about. And the reason we're doing Star Trek this week is that recently, CBS All Access started their 23 weeks of Trek. And they started that with Star Trek Lower Decks. So for the next 23 weeks, we'll have new episodes of Lower Decks and then Star Trek Discovery. Uh, This is the first spoiler alert we're going to put on this podcast because for the past couple episodes, we've talked about cinematic universes that haven't had recent entries. But Lower Decks is going to be coming out every week uh, and then Discovery for the next couple of weeks. So if you haven't watched the first two episodes of Lower Decks, brief spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about it now. And the reason I want to talk about Lower Decks is that it is something completely different in, in canon for any universe, really. It is a comedic Rick and Morty-style cartoon that is 100% in continuity and canon with the rest of Star Trek. So first off, Kevin, what did you think of the first two episodes? So I'm going to be honest. I was, I enjoyed them a lot more than I thought I was going to. Um, 
Rick and Morty's not personally up my alley, and I might not have gotten to them right away if we weren't going to be covering them for this. Uh, and I think that they deliberately kind of set them off so that they would be in continuity and it would all count, but you wouldn't be missing anything if it wasn't, you know, your speed. But I'm going to say, even if that's not your style of show, give it a watch because I really did enjoy uh, what they put out there. It was something different, but it was something fun. And I'm glad it's part of the Star Trek universe. Yeah. What I liked about it is that, so it's definitely inspired by Rick and Morty. You know, the main two characters basically have a Rick and Morty like dynamic, you know, so Mariner is the Rick. She's a little bit more of a grizzled veteran. She drinks a lot. She's very um, distasteful of authority. And, and she just, you know, she is her own, she is a wild card. And then Boimler is like the, you know, wet behind the ears. He idolizes heroes. So it's, it's funny to see them have basically the same Rick and Morty dynamic. Yeah, and um, yeah, he's taken, you know, straight out of the academy. Clearly his very first posting. Um, but, you know, it's, they took that and then they grafted it right into the concept that they took uh, the show from was the Next Generation episode of the same name, Lower Decks, that followed yes. four ensigns around and kind of took them through a different perspective than we typically see in Star Trek when we follow the bridge crew and, you know, the big movers and shakers on the ship. And, um, you know, it's the kind of perspectives that you have from the lower ranks of the bridge officers, they kind of, they kind of took and ran with what we saw a little bit in that season seven episode. Yeah. What's interesting is that no matter what the ship is on previous shows, we always seem to be dealing with the best of the best. If it's enterprise or Voyager, like we're talking about like class a cadets, class a heroes, like these people are the best at what they do. But what I think is hilarious is that nobody on this ship, the Cerritos, is the Cerritos or whatever it might be pronounced. None of them are good at what they do. Like even the main crew that seems to be, you know, in the background and like the bridge crew as they're called, they wouldn't be good enough to be on the Voyager or the Enterprise. Yeah, for sure. The, um, you know, one of the things I took away immediately, the first officer was, I think, kind of, like if somebody took a really sour look at Will Riker, like that's yes. who that guy, you know, all of the swagger, but none of like the competence that we get to see throughout, you know, the seven seasons of next generation and the four movies, uh, just all arrogance, no uh, substance. And, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really interesting just cause like, they, like I said, like, so another would be good enough to be on the enterprise, you know, like they're all, they're all, they're almost like caricatures of, of like Enterprise or Voyager crew. And what I also love is that they specialize in second contact, which is obviously in a big federation, you would have a lot of paperwork and all this stuff. And that seems to be what these guys do. They do the very boring parts. Yeah, it's, uh, it's almost, they almost, uh, they're breaking the fourth wall a little bit talking about it, like just kind of, you know, but like it, it's, and, and this is kind of the brilliance of it. It's something, it's clearly something that would exist like the, a ship like the Cerritos that would follow up and specialize in dotting the I's and crossing the T's, like that, that clearly would be there. But it's just uh, the, the way they kind of worked it in was, um, it, like you said, it's not your typical way you handle uh, Star Trek. But it's, uh, it, it was. Yeah, and nobody would follow them. Like they wouldn't be heroes. Like, 
Like, you know, you can name the first crew that went to the moon, but can you name the third man to step on the moon? I, I cannot. No. I, 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 the guy on the Apollo 11 mission who didn't go to the moon, I know who Michael Collins is. I have no idea who was on Apollo 12. Exactly. So uh, it's, it, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, now, uh, and, you know, the, the, the thing that I think exemplifies, like, kind of, like, what they're going for this ship the most was in the opening credits, you have that battle between the Romulans and the Borg, and they show up for half a second, take one phaser blast off their shield, and then just nope right out of there. <laughs> it's almost like a, a puppy dog, its reaction, the way it just kind of hightails away from the bigger dogs. Yeah, right? And what's interesting about this, too, is that, so this is, as we mentioned earlier, in canon, so it's in continuity. And this also means that this is set in between the events of the Next Generation movies, specifically Nemesis, the last one we saw, and the events of Picard. So it's 2380, which means that it's before the uh, Romulan attack on, um, on Mars that kind of, you know, like set up the whole story of Picard. So it's still very much like a Next Generation era storyline. So it's interesting, will they ever catch up to the attack on Mars or where are they going to go from here? Yeah, and it's, you know, and this kind of gets to uh, something that, like, I've always, you know, we've talked about in the past about how Star Trek should always be forward-looking. And, you know, part of the mistakes may go back, but, you know, not just that it should be forward-looking, but it is now stuck attached to the Next Generation era. Um, when the original show came out, it ran for three years, and it was off the air for close to 20 years when Next Generation rolls around. And so it was very easy to jump into the future. And then Next Generation came back and Star Trek was popular again between Next Generation and the original cast movies. And we started getting direct spinoffs. And so right. it made that, you know, DS9 and Voyager would all be set like very connected time-wise to the Next Generation. And obviously the, the Next Gen characters that, they cameoed extensively in both DS9 and in Voyager, that all being tied in. But you know, here's the thing, like we we don't have that kind of big jump ahead away from this period in time. Like Star Trek has been now stuck here for 30 years. And so like this is again a new show that we could, you know, in continuity, we could have gone anywhere with it, and we still kind of attach it to this second generation you know, crew here. And, um, yeah, it's just like, it's something that I feel like Star Trek, Star Trek is best when it doesn't get caught in its own history. Yes. Which is, which is something we're going to get into a lot is how they sometimes get bogged down in retcons. We'll talk about that later. And, and one thing I, I, I want to mention is that you, you talked about like almost the shadow that the next generation put over these other TV shows. And that was both real and imagined in the sense that there were big budget next generation movies coming out while Voyager and Deep Space Nine were still on TV. So they were always like the little brother, like even after the next generation was over, you know, this Emmy um, winning TV show, they were then the cast and crew that had the bigger budgets for like the bigger stories. So they were always like second tier when it comes to DS9 and Voyager. Right, and I think one of the things that kind of jumps out with that is, 
you know, because you had Wharf was obviously the, the main bridge between, you know, the original, the, 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 the next generation cast and obviously, you know, becoming a regular on Deep Space Nine. And in First Contact, Wharf takes the Defiant back. Where is the rest of the DS9 crew? You know, like, maybe not everybody, but like, you know, I find Wharf has command of it. Like, where's Chief O'Brien? Where's Dr. Bashir? Like, why, you know, in story, like, why aren't they there? Why aren't they a part of that movie? The, the fact is, they are kind of the little brother, and it was all about the next generation cast. They were the ones that got the big screen. Exactly. And then, in many ways, uh, you know, the future of Star Trek is kind of too tied into the next generation, as great as Picard is. And it reminds me of a previous episode where Matt Anthony and I talked about Terminator. And we kept on talking about how the problem with the Terminator series going forward is that Arnold Schwarzenegger was too good. Like they're always tied into like writing him into the, the movie. So like they can't really do a proper complete remake or reboot. And now that he's older, they've written these like ways in which he can still be in the movie, but be older or they de-age him for smaller scenes. And I feel like now we're kind of stuck where we can't go a hundred years in the future which is basically what they did for Next Generation, because then we wouldn't have any of the people that everybody wants. Everybody wants to see Picard. They want to see Riker. Right. And, you know, it's like, you know, going on the Terminator thing, it's, again, like, like you said, like, Terminator 2 was too good. So they've erased and redone so much of that franchise. But they're never, you know, no matter what they do with the Terminator movies, T1 and T2 are always going to be canon. Like, it right. just, they can't get past those. And so, like, they keep, like, erasing, like, the, the stuff past that and going back to that. And so with Star Trek, it's the same thing. We're anchored to the next generation. And that, that was kind of the point I was making there. It's, you know, we know, like, from that scene in Enterprise when uh, Daniels takes Archer out to the Enterprise J, like, you know, there is a future for the, for the Federation two centuries later, at least. Like, there is so much they could go into. I mean, we're going to leak into the 25th century in the next steps of Picard almost by accident because – you know, you, we're at twenty three ninety nine, but it's still, you know, in the same way that like we're we're twentieth century children, now we're in the twenty first century. We didn't become time travelers. It's just like it's just all right there. It's still connected to uh, exactly. Uh, and then just just to kind of like throw some numbers out there, because this is something I wanted to kind of write down for myself. So even the most hardcore Star Trek fans might not quite understand just how separate all these time periods are. So for instance, just generally talking about like when things happen. So like Enterprise, which is the prequel series about like the, the first uh, Warp 5 capable ship with, you know, that was the one Scott Bakula. That one's right. set in the 2150s. Right. And then Discovery and the original Kirk Spock show from the 60s that's one set that is set in the 2250s for Discovery and the 2260s for the original series. So, so even just between Enterprise and the original Star Trek, that's about 100 years. Right. And then just for comparison, now you have the Next Generation series, which is now 2360s. And then that kind of continues the timeline to the 70s because DS9 and, and Voyager uh, pop off from there. So, you know this is kind of different for what we have now to have Picard, the lower decks and all this stuff happening, you know, right after all the other shows. Yeah. And it's, you know, just, you know, with the anchoring point, like we were saying, you know, not being able, 
you know, it, it makes, you know, it originally, like the reason that we were able to get separation from the original series to uh, Next Generation made sense because there was the gap. And the reason we didn't have separation from Next Generation to DS9 and to Voyager was because they were direct spinoffs. But it's like, now that they have the opportunity to jump again and they won't, because they didn't previously and that worked and i feel like they're just tying themselves up there all right so now i want to get into some like the fodder from the the larger canon questions that lower deck kind of um introduces so if we're to accept this as canon within the universe i have a couple of different like nitpicky this is the very geeky like you know star trek fanboy stuff that matt and anthony couldn't even begin to get into that's why i had you on so The one thing I really want to get into. All right. So first off, they mention in episode two, section 31. Correct. So he's, he's doing this weird, uh, Boimler is, he's doing this weird like uh, run walk thing. And he says section 31 does this, which implies that by 2380, do we know that? Because nobody's supposed to know section 31. The viewer knows section 31 exists, but it is not a well-known uh organization within the universe right and so and that's something that star trek and by going backwards in time they've somewhat struggled with this like this is what we talked about being a little too self-referential so section 31 is originally introduced in the later seasons of deep space nine as a super secret like buried within the federation doesn't play by the rules for the greater good organization and it's closer to men in black almost and evil men in black than the CIA. Like it's not supposed to be like the CIA. We at least know the CIA exists, even though most Americans might not know, or we know for sure we don't know every one of their missions, but we know that they exist. This is like a completely illegal cabal that might've started off based in the hierarchy of Starfleet and Federation, but now is like a completely independent spy agency. Completely unaccountable. Well, it's, uh, it's like the line in Kingsman uh, where uh, Samuel, they're, they're running through all the uh, spy organizations. Samuel L. Jackson, he, um, he just kind of stuffed Beijing. That's how you know you have a secret service. It's so secret you don't even know its name. Like that's, that's, how, that's where Section 31 operates. Um, Great comparison. It, go, you know, it goes back and you know, it was very, you know, I think it was very popular. A uh, couple of episodes that they, uh, they ran in um, with uh, William Sadler as the, uh, the main agent in DS9 and you know they, they go back to the concept a couple times uh in Enterprise and then in Discovery and in Discovery they kind of made it's like yeah section 31 everybody knows who they are they have their own badges they have their own fleet like you know oh we gotta deal with section 31 again and you know and then we get up to you know where is 120 years later in DS9 like there's no nobody knows who they are so like what was going on with this organization now they're public knowledge again in 2380 so it's just kind of like that's like a situation where by kind of jumping around his own timeline, Star Trek's had difficulty keeping its canon in order. They're like the perfect example of like the retcon problems of a prequel. Yes. So, but, and then this, this kind of is a perfect segue uh, into what I'd want to talk about next. So let's just say, I think thumbs up lower decks. I feel like it, there's a lot there for fans of Rick and Morty. And also for fans of Star Trek, like the animation looks like Rick and Morty. I mean, there's cursing, there's drinking. It's, but not in a way that like ruins Star Trek, just in a way I think that like makes it fun. Yeah, no, in, you know, um, Mariner's 
um, kind of adventures with the Klingon in the second episode, it's like that, that totally makes sense for a Klingon warrior that, you know, he's a drunkard much like Kor was throughout, like that's, you know, that's what they do. Like that worked perfectly. So they can take that kind of Rick and Morty feel to it, but make it fit for Star Trek and not just make it be out of character for the people that we're dealing with. It's funny. Episode two was kind of the first episode of Star Trek where I was like, oh, this like, this resembled how I would spend a weekend just like hanging out with friends. (laughs) (laughs) This is kind of what like, I can see me and my, like like us going out with like Matt and Anthony, like this is what we would do if we could go to Little Kronos. We would get drunk and we would like go around yeah. like you know, not maybe to the um to the <laughs> ridiculous extent of them, but you know, like hey, like you would have some Romulan whiskey. I don't know why it's whiskey and not ale, it's a whole nother continuity thing. But I think like they would just have fun, like like a normal person. Yeah. For sure. It's great. So now this is time we're gonna segue into just why we're talking about Star Trek, because you know, this show is all about what is and what is in canon. And one thing that Star Trek goes through big loops to, to do is fit everything into canon. So they have movies and TV shows and all this stuff, and everything is canon. There's no soft reboots. There's no erasing or selective sequels. Everything ties in. But because of that, everything doesn't always match. Absolutely. And, you know, and as we've talked about again, this is uh, the difficulty that when you have prequels and this we've had three prequels that have aired to date we've had star trek enterprise was the first one which tried very hard to make everything line up um and it to the point of sometimes over explaining things or getting too caught up in it but it very clearly cared about making canon matter yes then we had the J.J. Abrams verse, which the way that was dealt with was we're going to create a new timeline and things are going to be different. And sometimes we're going to explain it. Well, sometimes we're not, but it's okay because it's a different timeline. So we're not really changing anything. Yeah, and, but it was, it was like tiptoeing around so that they opened it up to a new audience without kind of angering like people like you and I who are like, invested into Star Trek and would have been really pissed if they actually did erase what we had seen before. Exactly. And that, that's what I thought was, so th- there was some stuff Abrams did and some stuff they, that I liked and some stuff he did that I really didn't care for. But, you know, generally speaking, I think he did strike the balance of the, what you were just mentioning, where, you know, paying proper homage to what was while also making it more accessible to the modern blockbuster audience. And yeah. You know, the, the, a lot of the things that were different were different in ways that make sense. Like the thing in Star Trek Beyond with the Kelvin pods, like it would make sense that they would have much more sufficient life pods for, you know, everybody after a traumatic event, like what happened with the USS Kelvin. Like that, that is something where you can add something new and it makes, it's cool and it makes sense in, in continuity. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we talked on our first episode of Cannon Fodder about, kind of you know and it's even in our intro the, the era of the fan and we talk about you know how fan responds to continuity and to where they think their characters should go is a newer phenomenon now because of the internet and because of you know m- the marvel and dc universes but star trek has been dealing with that since the 70s like there has been a vocal very organized highly communicative star trek fan base for 50 years now yes 
And so it, it's interesting. It's in many ways, I think Star Trek kind of like is the prototypical cinematic universe and kind of set the blueprint for all the others. And it started like right off the bat. So Star Trek had two pilots, which was, it was the first TV show to ever have two pilots. And the pilots are wildly different, but rather than just have a pilot and then not air it as like a cost cutting measure, but also as a way to like build a, a larger universe, they reuse footage from the original pilot uh, in an episode just in that first, in that second season, right? The first, first season. season. Yeah. It was the Menagerie. So basically, if, for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, the pilot, so the original pilot's called a cage, and it involves the Enterprise, but with a very different crew. So it's uh, Captain Pike as opposed to Captain Kirk. There's still Spock, uh, but he's, he's not first officer. He's a, he's a lieutenant, so he's a little bit lower in, in uh, rank. And they go to and they go to a planet and then that planet becomes all, very important to Star Trek lore. It's interesting for something that was originally dropped. They go to a, a planet Talos 4 where they have these very powerful telepaths and they have basically allowed this woman who had crash landed there. You find out later that she is disfigured, but she can live uh, a life where she's beautiful and active because of their mental machinations. Yeah, and so this episode didn't, you know, the, the pilot didn't get picked up well. It, it wasn't well received. So they, they, they created a, uh, they, they recast the show and they, they launched the second pilot, but then they took that episode. And as you said, like in the real world, we recognize it was a cost saving measure. Hey, we already have this footage shot. We can, you know, get a new episode just by splicing this stuff in. But in terms of building the world out, like it would make sense that yes, you know, the Enterprise had a you know a previous crew, a previous mission. Like it just kind of building it all in together there, and that's I mean Star Trek. I mean you know it's about an inter you know an interplanetary organization you know act, you know operating throughout half the galaxy, and like this is kind of the I think the first step really showing that you know, it really is bigger than just the bridge of the Enterprise. Exactly. It's not just like the Millennium Falcon going out there by itself. You know, they're, they're part of a large team. Yes. And then I love how they go back to it, you know, because they go back to it because Spock, out of loyalty to his old commander, brings his now disfigured Captain Pike there because Spock knows that even though this planet has been put off limits because of the events of that first pilot, if he brings Captain Pike there, he can basically no longer, he, he can escape the chair and the, like his full body paralysis that he's stuck in where he's, his mind is active, but his body is not. And to, to the point that Spock had risked what was at the time, the, the only, uh, the only action that could still uh, receive the death penalty within the Federation was visiting the split. That, that is how, you know, taboo going there was. It's, yeah. Spock literally risked his life to do this uh, action for his former captain. I think it was a way of showing, like, at the time, you know, the show was still feeling out what it meant to be a Vulcan, you know, in terms of, like, this, like, you know, this physically superior, mentally superior, highly logical being, like, and this is a way of showing that, you know, despite all that, it wasn't a cold, you know, Spock wasn't a cold automaton, that he could still 
feel this kind of loyalty for somebody. And I, I think that was, you know, a big moment in Spock's character development. Yeah, and it, it kind of gets to the heart of Spock, which is how do you have relationships that can be meaningful without emotions? And this is a perfect example of, this is a meaningful relationship he has with Pike, like the, with the loyalty you mentioned, but it's not in competition with his vows to, and, and his stated, um, you know, like all the colonar and everything goes through. It's not against his desire to not have emotions and his attempts to not have emotions. And then, and the, but then speaking about emotions, this is where you get into, this is like the first retcon problem. This is first episode of Star Trek. We already have retcon problems. And that is that one of the post uh, photos I'll post on the, on the Instagram uh, feed when we post this episode is that if you want to see Spock smiling, he smiles in the first pilot because in that first pilot, they hadn't really worked out all the kinks of what a Vulcan was, like you had said. So he smiles when he sees these plants that make noise and that would not be something spock does you know once we get to know him into that first season exactly yes that's and that's although interestingly it is something that once we get to the movies and he's become comfortable enough with his human app that like he he almost it's like he does have enough self-confidence to express some of his humanity and that it's not diminishing from his status as a Vulcan. So right. it's kind of a full circle thing. Yeah, he'll make a joke, but he won't laugh at it. That's like the perfect Spock at the end. Yes. And then uh, the other thing I want to mention, there are drastically different uh, casts in these two pilots. And what's interesting is, is just, we think about Star Trek as being such a progressive show, you know, because the cast and crew that we know from the main series, you know, you have uh, somebody of Japanese descent just um, two decades less than two decades after World War II. You have, um, you have a Russian. At the height of the Cold War. Exactly. At the height of the Cold War, you have a Russian. You have a black woman in a position of relative command. Like, she is one of the top officers on this ship in a very important role. It's, you know, it's, it's really great to see. And, of course, you have an alien, too, so it really plays out this progressive thing. But one of the reasons why the original pilot wasn't picked up on the network and one of their complaints was that they didn't find it believable that that ship's second in command was a woman. And that's, you know, that, that is an issue that Star Trek has had throughout its history, not just in the 1960s, where it clearly is a show about how progressive and evolved humanity can become. But behind the scenes, uh, there have been issues, I mean, particularly with sexism. Like, yeah. and how a lot of the women, the actresses, uh, the issues they have had um, dealing with producers. Um, Gates McFadden, who's played Beverly Crusher, was fired for a year because she, you know, had issues with how her character, a, a doctor, a commander, and a single mother was not being portrayed. Um, is, she was being portrayed too much as a damsel in distress. Yeah. And, you know, Jadzia Dax was killed off because Terry Farrell wasn't, you know, wanted basically a little bit more work-life balance. And they yeah. like, no, oh, you know, see you, bye. You know, Tasha Yar left for very similar reasons. Denise Crosby was having issues with, um, uh, with producers. And then I think the very obvious example is, um, 
you know, putting Jerry Ryan in the cat suit as seven of nine as, you yeah. know, you know, just, you know, hey, here, here, here's your, uh, here's your sex single, uh, sex symbol, uh, Star Trek fans, you know? Just, yes. And, and as a teenager, I appreciated that character. But now when you look back on it, you're just a little bit like, oh, maybe that wasn't the best message or that was definitely not the best message to send. <laughs> no, no baby about it there. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's, what's interesting is that, you know, Star Trek, while it's supposed to give us a glimpse of our future, it really ties into the present day and the problems of the present day. And that's what's, you know, just getting back to that, you know, the problem with the women in the cage. So it's a real, it really tells you about just how much we've come as a society. Whereas like, all right, so when this cinematic universe began 50 years ago, it was too progressive to see a woman in second command, even though that episode doesn't really pass the Bechtel test in terms of the, the female characters. You know, like there are two prominent female characters, or three in the episode, and basically all three of them are fighting after Pike in a certain way. Like there's this, you know, like everybody wants to mate with Pike as the Talosians say it. And so even an episode that clearly treats women as just, you know, going after men and like, you know, like, and, and displaying like this, like the enterprise is not being the most professional work environment, <laughs> you know, that was too progressive for them because a woman was in a slight position of power. Well, and that's the thing. So in the 1960s, it was, it, it was good enough to have Nichelle Nichols on the bridge as, as Lieutenant Uhura. And it was, uh, you know, to this day, she also dealt with a lot of problems with producers behind the scenes to the point that she was going to quit the show. And the person who convinced her not to quit the show was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who basically told her, no, it's too important that you're there. And yeah. when they did the reboot uh, series with J.J. Abrams, you know, Zoe Saldana's Uhura is a much more prominent character because I think it's more, you know, you're not just going to put a black woman up there as, you know, part of the set piece. Like, she is going to be one of the main characters. And, you know, she's, you know, they also, they got a fantastic actress for her and, you know, it's worked really well, but it just, it shows like how much that changed over 40, 50 years. Yeah. Shout out to Martin Luther King, not only one of the greatest Americans of all time, but one hell of a fanboy who, who yeah. made his, uh, who made his opinions on the future of the show. No. All right. So yes. So, so the first way in which Star Trek has really um, set the blueprint for our modern cinematic universe is the retconning and just like, double pilots you know that's something that um you know we've now seen with game of thrones and with other shows is that now when you have these big cinematic universes you have these big projects that networks are going to willing to put money behind we're going to see more and more like drastically re-edited pilots and like giving a second chance at things yeah and i mean i think that's a positive development it's like just because you know your execution wasn't right doesn't mean the concept's not there exactly you know, you know, and just like, you know, th think about like what we would have lost if, you know, Game of Thrones' terrible first pilot had just led to them pulling the plug on the show. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, HBO wouldn't be in a strong position as they are. I don't know if there's an HBO Max if Game of Thrones doesn't do really well. Like, HBO was a brand because of many shows, but that brand was able to keep up because of Game of Thrones. If, if, if HBO hadn't had that marquee show for that 10-year span, I think we would have thought of HBO as that was the foregone era of The Wire, Sopranos, and Sex and the City, and it's right. not something now. 
to, to get to the next level. I mean, it really didn't need that. Exactly. So, we're t you know, this show is all about canon, continuity, and uh, interconnected universes. And it can get no interconnected than a spinoff. So this is, this is the thing that I came across and knew very little about when I started the research for this episode. And it is my favorite and funnest Star Trek thing out there. This is the failed backdoor pilot that was a second season episode of Star Trek, the original series called Assignment Earth. And for those of you who haven't seen it, I just, you have to see it. I highly recommend it. It is an amazing like 1960s time capsule when everybody was obsessed with James Bond and you could just get away with really campy things. And it's just incredible. Had you seen it before I told you to watch it for this episode? So I think I had seen parts of it. Um, so I, I'm actually, despite being a huge Star Trek fan, there's actually only two completed series that I have seen every episode of. And that's... Oh, and here I build you, I build you as an expert, Kevin, and now you're letting us down. Don't, don't talk about your lack of qualifications for our no, listeners. It's 780 episodes. I mean, come on, let's be real. <laughs> no, but it's, um, you know, there just, there is so much with Star Trek and there's so much more to still discover. I mean, we've, yeah, we, we've only been on this earth for 33, 34 years. So, I mean, that, that's clearly not enough time to watch all Star Trek, but. Uh, well, thanks to the pandemic, I, I've gotten a lot more time to watch it recently, which is what led me to Assignment Earth. So for those of you who don't know about Assignment Earth, it was originally written as a standalone pilot. So Roddenberry was afraid that Star Trek was not gonna come back for a third season. And so he was trying to stay in the TV game by producing different pilots. The pilot wasn't picked up by CBS or any other network. So he ended up just reusing the script for Star Trek. So inexplicably, the Star Trek Enterprise is now in the 60s. They're, they're on some sort of time travel fact-finding mission, which we'll get into in a moment. Completely, it's a whole retcon because we get into how in later seasons and episodes of Star Trek, time travel was a no-no, but these guys are going back there like, you know, like, like it's their Tuesday job is to go back in time. And they come across a guy called Gary Seven, who is a human who is of that time, but from a different planet. It's very unclear. But what is clear is that he is a direct response to the popularity of James Bond. So obviously Gary Seven is his full name, 007. That's exactly where the seven comes from. He has a black cat companion that he's always petting, which is then just taking the trope of um, what we think of now of Dr. Evil, but was Spectre and, and Ernst Blofeld, and him with the cat, petting the cat all the time. But now it's a good guy petting the cat. And he, he of course, uh, has this uh, like beautiful female assistant who wears a very short skirt and is just there to like be eye candy, unfortunately. And it's just, it's just a ridiculous episode. And they go out of their way to make you know that this guy's supposed to be James Bond. My favorite part is there is a wall in his office of just martini glasses, like 20 martini glasses. Yeah, no, it's the, the whole gentleman spy kind of, you know, dressed in the suit, he's got the gizmos, the, um, the, the servo that, you know, talking about is clearly the, um, you know, it's clearly the inspiration for Doctor Who's sonic screwdriver. It just, you know. The other way, work. I think the Doctor Who is older. 
they so nothing about this episode is is uh, is original they, they, he was just like i'm taking james bond and i'm copying doctor who and i'm putting him on a star trek episode and he just thinks people are gonna love it i mean he's not wrong <laughs> i mean i love it but apparently it didn't go anywhere and uh, everything about this the post uh that we're going to have for this episode on Instagram is going to have this amazing photo from the episode and it will spoil the episode if you haven't seen it, but it's not like there's a storyline that gets ruined for you here. It's him right next to like an Apollo rocket with a cat on his back as he is like tampering with the rocket because Gary Seven's job is to stop the U.S. from using an Apollo rocket to put nuclear weapons in space, which eventually like destroys mankind. And it's just, it, it looks so cheap and this cat, it could be a human too. There are like random shots at the end of the episode where the cat turns into a human. I just love how, how campy and 60 this episode is. But so, um, you know, we talked about how that uh, kind of, you know, they, they just were going back into time, going back in time in a way that, you know, it was like, whatever, that's no big deal. Um, right as we find out in future seasons of Star Trek, time travel is actually a very big deal. It's not an easy thing to do. And um, Star Trek hasn't always handled time travel the same way. Right. So in this episode, you know, one of the things, you know, at the end of the episode, they kind of like come out and say like, you know, well, no, we actually didn't change anything. This event always happened. Like, even though the Enterprise interfered in Gary Seven's mission and maybe it didn't go off the way it would have if he wasn't there, the way it wound up going off was the way that their history had recorded it going off. So in this version of time travel, the Enterprise always went back to 1968. It always was involved in stopping this missile launch from detonating and causing World War III. And, you know, while the Enterprise's role wasn't recorded, it's very clear that their influence was there. And that is not always the way that Star Trek has handled time travel. Right. So this gets into some of the inspiration that Star Trek has for other uh, projects. So the predetermined future, like, like the fact that they were always supposed to go back in time like this, clearly inspires John Connor, right? So John Connor is a perfect example. I, we're, we're mentioning Terminator a lot in this episode. So, you know, Terminator, you know, only exists that whole movie and John Connor himself only exists because somebody from the future went back in time and and it was his father. So like that predetermined future, that paradox, you know, that's something that Star Trek deals with. And this gets into your kind of, I'm going to call this Kevin's grand theory of Star Trek time travel. And that gets into, basically there's two types of time travel. There's accidental time travel and predetermined time travel. So you're starting to talk about that, get into that a little bit more. Yeah, so it's actually, there's three types. So, oh, sorry. This is a very expensive theory. I didn't give enough credit. So Star Trek is kind of handles time travel in three ways. There, there's the one we just talked about uh, with Assignment Earth, where the Enterprise going back in time, it always was part of the events that had occurred. And they didn't realize it at the time, but th that was always the case. And, you know, uh, Star Trek Enterprise does this a little bit uh, when they retcon what causes the Borg to eventually invade the Alpha Quadrant in the 24th century. Um, so in Star Trek First Contact, uh, they, they go back in time to stop the Borg from preventing First Contact. They blow up the Borg sphere. You know, they, 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 they think they've stopped it all. But there's um, a couple of Borg kind of 
like land and get frozen in the polar ice caps and they get found in the time of enterprise and they start assimilating things and the enterprise stops them before they go too far but there's thing they send a signal to the delta quadrant and uh the enterprise crew calculates it'll take 200 years for that signal to reach and so basically it's saying that well that's the reason that the borg wound up invading in the first place creating again this pre this this paradox this predestination thing, which is also not how Next Generation originally had the Borg introduced. Exactly, because originally they were introduced to the humans basically early. Q brought them together. He's, he's, um, he shortened the distances between them to kind of give uh, the crew of the Enterprise D like a warning and as a reason as why they shouldn't push the boundaries of the frontier and of exploration. Right, the, the, the frontier pushes back. Exactly. Oh, that's, oh, that is one of my favorite lines in all of Star Trek. And that's why I think Star Trek Beyond is a very underrated film. I really love that film. It, it really is. It's, it's a shame it did so poorly at the box office because, it, to me, it's a top four Star Trek film. Yeah, it, uh, it's, it's so incredible. It, and it found a way to have that action and Star Wars-like feel from the, the previous Abrams movies while being really tied into the progressive exploration science ethos of Star Trek itself. It, it, very, very much so. Um, and uh, not, you know, not, not just to get on too much of the um, uh, of a beyond tangent here, but it just, you know, the um, whole like exploring about what humanity losing itself and then finding itself again, it just, it really is, you know, that, that is a core Star Trek. That, that is Star Trek at its absolute best. Yes, definitely. It really, and, and, it, and it does it in a way where you could see it almost being an episode of the original series. A lot, a lot shorter. Yeah, no, you absolutely could have cut that down, you know, could cut a lot of this stuff out of it. Because the first part of the episode was just all set up that you, you could have chopped out. But it... Um, <clears throat> You know, in, in terms of messaging, it, it's straight classic Roddenberry. Yeah, it's great. So keep going here with our, just how we think, or I think anyway, that Star Trek really is your prototypical uh, cinematic universe. One thing that I think Star Trek has done better than any cinematic universe, and that includes the Arrowverse and the MCU and, and all these universes that I love so much, is the connection between movies and TV. It's something that we never got with the Netflix uh, Marvel shows, the Daredevil and all that, or, or with or Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. Yeah. Now, supposedly, they're going to be doing a better job with the Disney Plus shows that are coming out next year. But it's, you know, the, um, you know, the, the Star Trek is somewhat with the, the original cast movies and the Next Generation movies, um, <clears throat> they kind of tied those in, but really worked hand-in-hand uh, hand with the Next Generation movies and then Deep Space Nine. Yeah, um, part of this is clever writing, but part of it is just, like, the luck of the production. So, for instance, none of the actors in these original Star Trek movies or these movies that were happening when the TV shows were on the air, none of them were so big that it would be prohibitively expensive or hard to book them for a TV show. You know, there is no Robert Downey Jr., uh, Chris Hemsworth, like equivalent in Star Trek. And the, the closest would be Patrick Stewart. And that really wasn't until after he was done doing Star Trek. Exactly. He, he became a much bigger, 
marketable star post Star Trek. You're totally right. Right. When, you know, Star Trek put him on the map, but X-Men launched him, I think. Exactly. And then, so, so what's great about that time is that there is a period of time, uh, basically from like 95 to 2005, this 10 year, like, you know, the, the, the golden age of, of Star Trek in many ways, where there is a movie coming out every other year. And there are one, if not two TV shows on. And those TV shows have cameos from people in the movies and vice versa. They, and from a production standpoint, they can reuse sets and uniforms. And I mean, one of my favorite Star Trek memories, and this is something that like kind of is now what every Marvel Universe movie has in terms of like um, their connections is when the Deep Space Nine crew started using the first contact Starfleet um, uniform right at the same time so in this so i so basically the same month where star trek first contact the first full next generation movie was released they had an episode called rapture on ds9 that introduced the same exact suit so so it was so it obviously makes sense you know to anybody watching but like to go through that level of detail to be like all right there's a new uniform on the movies, well, the movies take place in the same world, so they have to have the same uniform on the TV shows. It would make sense that this would be Starfleet-wide, exactly. That This is all, it is all, one, it's, you know, it's not a movie universe and a TV universe. It's, it is one, a shared universe, one might say. Hey, shout out to where we normally record these uh, episodes. Yeah, so it's just, I mean, I'm just going to run through a couple of them. There are just so many great, uh, connection. So obviously the first and best movie TV connection is Wrath of Khan, you know, using yeah. a classic. Direct sequel to uh, the movie being a direct sequel to a TV episode. One of the best villains that Star Trek's ever had. Uh-huh. And it's a, yeah, and it's a great way of writing too, because like you appreciate that movie more if you saw the episode, but the way they, the way they introduce the character and, and everything you don't need to know anything about that episode to watch this this movie well it's it, it lets you know kirk marooned khan on this planet and khan wants revenge and that's exactly. yeah it's that- yeah and then first contact as well was you know a direct sequel to obviously best of both worlds and just like the other episodes we've had with the borg over time it's you know this you know again if you had watched the next generation you knew about the borg is this implacable enemy the borg are invading earth like you get that you know cards you know nightmare so to speak at the beginning of the film but if you didn't see that you don't need to know that to get that this is this existential threat to the federation yeah because that 21st character 21st century character lily who is uh you know she's almost like the the unheralded assistant for um James Cromwell's character, Zephyrin Cochran, you know, she, she is the, she is the point of view of the audience. And so like, he explains to her what happens to him. So it's a good way to like, you know, mention that episode without it seeming like, you know, previously on Star Trek recap. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about like the interconnectedness. Um, and this is something I think you wanted to get to a little bit later, but, you know, there's an episode of Deep Space Nine where the, um, Jadzia's Dax's character, who she is the host of a symbiont who has had many previous hosts. Yeah. And the prior host, uh, Curzon Dax, had you know, made a blood oath with these three Klingons he was friends with. 
Well, here's the thing with these three Kleons. They are all characters that we had seen in the original series or the original cast movies and with the same actors coming back. And it just, you know, in terms of time, it's a deep cut. Like if you hadn't seen that, you wouldn't necessarily uh, realize it. In fact, I watched the DS9 episode before I watched uh, the original series episode where one of the, um, where one of these characters, and I'm like, that guy's familiar. I looked at him, I was like, wait, that is, that is the same actor, that is the same character that later comes back in DS9. And it's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and for those of you not aware, like the, one of the reasons why it's such a deep cut and why it's so clever is that the Klingons look vastly different in these two shows. So when the Klingons are first introduced in the original series, they look vaguely human. They have very distinctive eyebrows and, and facial hair, but they look more human than Vulcans do. Yeah, the casual racism was still there, but, you know. Yes, unfortunately. But, you know, because, you know, there's always the, you know, Star Trek is a story of its time. And I've always viewed, you know, the Federation as being the Allies slash U.S. side of the Cold War. And then you have these two other sides. One is the Romulans, which are basically China. And then you have the Klingons, which are basically the USSR. And which becomes very clear when the undiscovered country coming out in 1991 is basically, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War between the U.S. and the USSR. That, that, that movie is a direct allegory. Exactly. And the only, the only way that we haven't really caught up now, though, what's interesting is that now Russia is once again an enemy, and so is China. But on Star Trek still, you know, the Klingons are still our closest ally, if you will. But at times, at times not. Uh, yesterday's right. interview—that's uh, uh, the fourth season in DS Nine. You know, so it, it does. Yeah. You know, they, they do go away. But you know, the, the Klingons never have a Yeltsin to Putin uh, this, step back because Duras was uh, successfully murdered. So yes, uh, not many podcasts are going to compare uh, Duras to Yeltsin and Putin here, guys. You're, you're only going to hear that on Cannon Fodder. I'll look into um, Russian geopolitical struggles through the eyes of Klingon episodes of, of Deep Space Nine in the next generation. So we did. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's so getting back. So like these Klingons in the original series, they basically look human, but most people now, even the casual or non Star Trek fan is going to know Klingons as being the, ridged aliens that they are now known as you know these they have these very distinctive large forehead ridges so they change the way the Klingons look in the original series movies which are just set you know about a decade or so after the show so there's no real explanation as to why they would change so then would you so you have this setup where there are now two visual styles for the Klingons so anytime you have a flashback or in some episodes, time travel, there needs to be an, an explanation in these prequels as to why the Klingons look drastically different. And this is what Star Trek does, like, almost to a fault. They painstakingly go out of their way to explain what other shows or, or, or movies would have just, like, not even mentioned. Right, and that was, I think, one of Enterprises at the same time, both it's, you know... It's endearing features and its flaws. Yeah. So it was first addressed in Trials and Tribulations when the DS9 crew 
goes back to the uh, the uh, the time of uh, trouble with Tribbles to prevent a plot to assassinate Kirk, and you know everybody's there, and you know, you know it's somebody... an episode way ahead of its time in terms of the way they cut footage from the original series show into like new stuff for DC's Nine, like starting to, but that is just amazing. So go on. The technological marvel, the way they spliced that in and like exact scenes and like, you know, the, the lineup where Kirk's trying to figure out who started the fight, but now Bashir and O'Brien are in there and, you know, and Kirk's dressing down O'Brien and it's, it's fantastic. But, um, you know, the way they, they first handled it there, because somebody, you know, the, like, you know, the, the people on the station were like, all these Klingons and all the DS9 crew who are used to Klingons having these big cranial ridges, like, what are you talking about? I didn't see any Klingons. And then Worf's there, like, yeah, they're Klingons. We don't talk about that. Like, and that's the way most franchises, they would have just left it like that, kind of like a joke, like, you know, like, and just yeah. waved it off. The exact line is, we do not discuss it with outsiders. And that totally works. Like, it works really well. The way Worf delivers it, it you know, it, yeah. it's like that would have been enough, right? We go back, Enterprise goes back, and Enterprise goes back through and explains how genetically engineered human DNA was spliced into Klingons, and then that caused, because in the time of Enterprise, in the prequels, they also had cranial ridges, and that caused them to lose their ridges and become more human-like in appearance. And so, like, it goes, it does go, it takes the time to go back through and explain that. And, uh, oh, and it's really complex, but it's a really great idea. Because the basic idea is that uh, the, the Klingons in a previous episode come up across uh, the same type of humans, the augmented humans that Khan is. So they are these super smart, super strong humans. And it makes a lot of sense that, okay, they got their butt kicked by these, by this secretive human uh, program. They don't know that augments are not allowed in the Federation anymore. Like they don't trust the humans. So they're now terrified that, you know, Starfleet's going to be filled with cons. So because of that, what they end up doing is experimenting, like you said, with the DNA trying to splice. And then two things happen. One, the DNA is too dominant. So that's why it basically erases the, erases the ridges. You know, it makes them more human-like in appearance. But also in a, in a weird parallel to our current time, like it causes a flu outbreak where it mutates with the flu. And then so this, you know, on um, this unauthorized kind of like military um, experimentation leads to a, into a like a lab made flu that ends up decimating the Klingon, you know, world. And what's crazy though, is that you never see a ridged Klingon in the original series. So like it, you know, it doesn't, it's not a perfect tie-in. Like it doesn't completely retcon cleanly. Right, because Klingons are long-lived enough that characters that were alive and active in the 23rd century were still able to be active 100, you know, 10 years later. They, yeah. they have ends of, like, similar to Romulans and to Vulcans. Thus, humans are weaklings that only live for 80 years instead of 200. And, yeah, and then all those DS9 Klingons, all these Klingons we see later that are the same Klingon as the original series, they all of a sudden have of forehead ridges, which can only mean one thing, which is that the Klingon Empire in like the 23rd century is a hotbed for um, plastic surgery in a way that 
Beverly Hills wishes it was today. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, I, every, every Klingon warrior is going to their plastic surgeon and getting huge ridges put on their head. <laughs> uh, so that, yeah, so, so this is, you know, the problem with the, you know, it's the retcon problem. And that's something that, you know, the MCU gets into and DC movies get into, you know, it's like when you just keep on building off the same world, you know, you can do flashbacks, you can do prequels like Captain Marvel is for the MCU, but, but then you end up changing little things here or there. You just kind of, you hope that they're little enough that you get away with it or that you are expensive enough with your geekery like Star Trek Enterprise where you concoct a very complex explanation behind what can only be described as a goof. Yeah, and so this actually, this is a good point to tie back in. Uh, we're going to go back into the time travel uh, discussion. Uh, so in Trials and Tribulations, the setup of the episode is actually, it's a flashback. The events right. of the episode that we see with the DS9 crew going back to the time, uh, to st the Station K-7 at the time of the Enterprise, it is being recounted by Captain Sisko to these temporal time agents, right? Yeah, Temporal and, Affairs, the Bureau of Temporal Affairs. Correct. And they, uh, at one point, uh, they ask him, you know, is, so you don't think this was a predestination paradox? Like, you guys weren't always there. That wasn't always part of the history, the way we had discussed about with the Assignment Earth episode, where that always right. wasn't. And I think the line is, you know, he said, no, I don't think so. He said, good, we hate those. And, <laughs> um, you know, it's, so this is a slightly different thing. This, in this case, the Defiant goes back in time, and they're trying to, history is being changed slightly and they're trying to make sure that it doesn't change in a way that dramatically affects anything. Like if the bomb had gone off, gone off and successfully assassinated Kirk, clearly, you know, the entire Star Trek world as we know it is rewritten. Right. Um, and so this is a case where you can go back and meddle in time and it can change things. And obviously there could be disastrous consequences. And your whole goal when you do that is just make sure you keep the ripple small enough to not divert the stream of the, the current. And so that, that's kind of like the second way that Star Trek has handled time travel. You can go back, you can change things, don't change them too much. Right. You know? Yeah, and then, so, and then this is tied into, I think we mentioned earlier a little bit, yesterday's Enterprise, where uh, this was, I think this was the first great Next Generation episode. Yeah. Uh, episode next generation I, I think it wasn't doing that well i actually read some 30th anniversary retrospectives on the episode earlier this year and so the the setup for this episode is you, it opens up you have the the bridge of the enterprise d as we know it and the and then something they detect some kind of temporal rift and then there's a shift and then all of a sudden you see everything's different. The, the bridge is much more militaristic. Everybody's wearing sidearms. The, the uniforms are, the, the, they're cut much more starkly. Uh, Tasha Yar is still the security officer. There's no sign of Worf. And it turns out what has happened is that the, this is now an alternate timeline where the Federation and the Klingons are at war with each other. The reason they're at war is the Enterprise C originally had gone to defend a Klingon outpost under attack from the Romulans and they sacrificed themselves in defense. They, they, they can't win. They're outgunned four to one. 
and they sacrifice themselves and the clans respect that. And it just, it renews the ties between the clans and the Federation. So the, the Enterprise C gets caught in this rift and that completely changes anything. So now we're in this timeline where this war starts and everything is about, well, if we can get them back there, we can, like they recognize that like this isn't, the guy name recognizes this isn't the proper timeline. And if we can get them back to where they should have been, the timeline's going to change. And th- these kind of drastic changes that we're talking about. And it's, um, yeah, it's a really great episode, but it, like, that's just kind of like a different way that time travel's handled. Okay, put the ship back where it belongs. The Enterprise-C does, you know, defend the outpost, is destroyed, and then history goes forward. Whereas if they're not there, it's really different. Right, and, and this is, uh, and, and I know this is your grand theory, and I might just be a layman in it, but this is, I think, the first introduction of the third part uh, or the third type of Star Trek time travel, which is the drastic tangent, which we see in yesterday's Enterprise, but they close the loop, if you will, very quickly within an episode. Whereas J.J. Abrams' movies, often referred to as the Kelvinverse, that is the same type of tangent, but one that isn't closed. So this is, for, for those of you who may not be Star Trek fans, but might be fans of a different geeky sci-fi show, this is Doc Bound's chalkboard timeline. So something goes back, somebody goes in the past and changes an event, and it creates a whole new reality. So and for those of you who really don't like the J.J. Abrams movies, then yes, it's, it's, it's the horrible future of Back to, of back to the Future 2. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, what happens there is you know, we go back in time, and the destruction of the Kelvin completely changes. You know, that's something that never happened. It, it completely changes how Starfleet views things. It obviously has a profound impact on uh, James Kirk's life. And, you know, so we get like a whole new kind of world. And it's, it allowed, you know, we talked earlier about like how Star Trek doesn't do soft reboots. It kind of allowed them to do a soft reboot without really, you know, doing it. So it still was, our original stock was still there because he wound up going back in time too. And so like, that is the connectivity to the original universe. But we had an excuse now. We can retell the story and do them differently. And, you know, Kirk has a very different path through life. And it just the whole, you know, it's just like the whole setup. It's, you, you can retell the story without throwing out what was. Without, a, without erasing what everybody has seen. You know, you keep the fanboys happy. Exactly. And then, and then, and then that's why I love your Doc Brown Back to the Future analogy, because what basically happens is that all of Star Trek is one line. And it's one line all the way through after the next generation of Voyager and all those movies, because in the next generation time, Spock is working with the Romulans. So then in this future, far future of Star Trek, something happens to the Romulan homeworld, gets destroyed, and Spock and the Narada end up going back in time. So at that point, you now create a divergence. So now you have two parallel lines of, of history. And what's shocking now is that Star Trek has now continued both lines. So obviously the Abrams movies, you have three movies which continue on this new line. But this future that Spock came from doesn't end with him. Like the timeline keeps going. That's where the show Picard is because the show Picard takes place after Spock goes back in time but it still takes place in a world where James Kirk's father wasn't killed like that. So you have two 
now parallel universes that are now existing at the same time. And they both had things be released in theaters and or TV, at, you know, over the past 10 years. Yeah, that's it. One thing I'm hoping with now the, the, the remerger of CBS and uh, Viacom, it's, I am hoping that we somehow, like, I think it would be really cool if they could somehow create some kind of like transdimensional crossover. We, you know, there, there's a number of movies that are on the table for the future of Star Trek and uh, with like kind of the Kelvinverse cast, like if they can get them all back and this isn't one of them. I just kind of think like that would be like a cool, like they could have them go do their own thing, but like having that tie back in, I don't know. I, oh, I like actually, in Avengers, you know, yeah. have like, have, have William Shatner, Chris Pine, and and the cast of the of the Next Generation all together, or, or like a Days of Future Past kind of thing. Yeah, that's a better example. Yeah, exactly. So you know, this is the perfect place I think to kind of start to wind down the episode. So let's talk about. So we haven't touched on every bit of continuity, canon, and retconning in Star Trek, and I'd love to get you on again to talk about it in the future. But because well, let- we haven't discovery, and that's its own. No, no, and you know what I think. Discovery is going to be coming out with a new season very soon. And that Discovery is a, is a retcon machine. <laughs> so, yeah, it that'd be a good time to watch because obviously now Discovery is in the future. Like, there's no retconning going on there. So we can kind of, like, wrap up and preview at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, so I'll definitely love to have you back on for a discussion of that. So, yeah, let, let's talk about um, where we see Star Trek going. So, like you mentioned... You know, Star Trek, the TV world is very, um, you know, it's well taken care of. You know, you have Picard's having another season, Discovery. You have Discovery spinoff called um, Strange New Worlds, which is all about that Captain Pike and like that cage pilot. Basically, it's a retelling of that crew's story. Um, And then we have a couple of animated shows, both uh, Lower Decks that we talked about. And then a new kids show called Prodigy. It's going to be on Nickelodeon. So Star Trek has plenty of TV future. But they basically had three projects uh, in development for the film, and they were all recently just ditched. So uh, basically what happened is that CBS and Paramount came together, and um, so now you have one combined company uh, under, like, the Viacom banner. And so the head of production over at Paramount uh, paused, or, or it, it sounds like, you know, like, according to some of these news reports, canceled these three different ideas. So one idea was uh, a very classic, like a fourth movie in the J.J. Abrams world. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, who was not a big star when he filmed the part of George Kirk, Jim Kirk's father in Star Trek, he, he was not a big star, now he is. So the idea is bring him back. Yeah, bring him back, have like a t- two Chris's, and just do like some sort of time travel movie there. I wonder what version of Star Trek time travel would that involve? Who knows, once you're in the J.J. verse, he makes some rules. <laughs> and then there's a, another idea, and this one seems to be definitively dead. Uh, Noah Hawley, who did Fargo and Legion, one of my favorite TV writers, probably my, my favorite active TV writer right now because I love Fargo. He had a pitch uh, that involved a, the Federation trying to fight a galaxy-wide pandemic. And because of, unfortunately, you know, what we're dealing with now, that doesn't seem to be the escapism that Star Trek provides. So it seems like that movie was dropped because of the pandemic. Yeah. And then the pitch that, that I loved, and I'm really sad 
wasn't picked up was Quentin Tarantino was going to make a Star Trek movie. Quentin Tarantino has famously said he's only going to do 10 movies. So he's already made nine. I never believed this would be his 10th. Maybe this would be his like Barbara Streisand or like Sinatra coming out of retirement again and again type thing. But he um, had co-written a pitch uh, with uh, Mark L. Smith, who wrote The Revenant, and it was going to be directed by Tarantino. And this would have been based off of the original series, a season two episode, Piece of the Action. Did, did you ever see that one, Kevin? I did. Excuse me, yes. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. It's, 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 I think that episode is the inspiration for one of the best Star Trek movies, and that is Galaxy Quest. And, <laughs> it, you know, Galaxy Quest is an amazing comedy, and it basically revolves around a alien species who sees a version of the Star Trek show called Galaxy Quest, and they base their entire culture around this TV show. So the cast of the original TV show end up being um, hailed as heroes and have to help uh, this, this, this species who views them as heroes and they don't understand the concept of TV. And, and, they, and basically, you know, like, they, are a, they are a very imitative species. And that is exactly what happens years earlier on this Star Trek uh, show. So basically what happens is that a Federation ship uh, comes across a human-like planet. And one of the things they leave behind in their cultural exchange is this book called Chicago Mobs of the 20s. And this planet eats up the world of 20s, you know, like um, Prohibition, Gangsters, Capone, the suits, pinstripes, Tommy guns, the whole deal. And now about 100 years later, when Earth recontacts uh, them through the Enterprise, they come across an entire gangster world where planet-wide, it's not countries, but they're territories. And all the lingo and everything, it's fantastic. I would love to see Tarantino do that. Yeah, no, that, that would, uh, I mean, to have a, um, you know, just somebody like Tarantino, like his, like just control of like a script and a dialogue that would be absolutely right up, like right, right in the strong suit right there. It would, it would be talking about how Lower Decks is a very different Star Trek. Like a, a Tarantino Star Trek would be like nothing we've ever seen. Exactly. And when it was first announced that Tarantino was doing a Star Trek movie, this wasn't announced. Like this whole 20s uh, idea, 20s gangsters that possibly ties into a piece of the action, that wasn't announced. So it only came out after the movie was canceled, unfortunately. And when I first heard Tarantino was going to do a Star Trek movie, I was excited. I was like, okay, Tarantino's amazing. It's going to be good. But then I was thinking, how would this work? And this is the perfect way because the villainous characters of this 1920s planet, uh, Sigma Iota 2, they could be the typical Tarantino character, right? They could, be, they could be irreverent. They could curse all the time, be very bloody and violent, you know, over the top because they're gangsters. And it would, it would be great to see that juxtaposed with the classic Starfleet officer. Yeah. Like, how do you, right, you know, how does your prime directive training help you handle that? Yeah, it's right. just. And fans of the show will know that um, we talked extensively about how Quentin Tarantino ties all his movies together. And he does it through last names of different characters, you know, brothers or family members. And of course, through the use of certain brands, uh, specifically 
red apple cigarettes. So I guarantee you, if Tarantino would have ended up making this movie, and who knows, maybe he still does, that some of these gangsters would have been like named Vega or something or tied into his other movies, or maybe they all would have been smoking red apple cigarettes. So that would have been a fun episode of Cannon Fodder. would have talked about. So is Star Trek IV, or whatever this ends up being called, is this, uh, is this canon with Kill Bill and uh, Pulp Fiction? Could be. We, uh, sadly, don't think we'll, we'll find out. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. But, you know, Tarantino is too young to retire. So I feel like, I feel like uh, you know, maybe he'll get another a st- stab at this. So, yeah. So, so, so we have three roads not taken. If you were to, to put forth, like, if you had the control to make your next Star Trek movie, where would you like to see them go, Kev? Um, so I feel like Star Trek does its best when it leads with the TV show and like the movie is kind of a tack on. And right now I'm not sure any of the shows are ready to hand off to a movie. So I I think I'd continue developing. What I would have done is I would have, instead of doing Star Trek Picard, I would have done an anthology and I would have had Picard die for real at the end of the series. Like I think that would narratively, that would have capped off the first season. I, I think that would have been appropriate. And then I would have done a series, you know, we could do it with characters we're familiar with, you know, we could introduce new characters. I, I, I mean, there's material with a Wharf series. You could have done a Cisco series, having coming back from his time with the prophets. Like they're like, you know, I explore in that kind of direction. Um, but, you know, one thing that uh, Star Trek has always done, it's always like kind of, like when it like goes back in time, it'll like not even when it goes back, when it references time, it'll like try to like jump ahead of like 20, 30 years from what is present at the time of the show to kind of predict what humanity will be like. Like for example, in the nineteen nineties were supposedly when the eugenics wars took place and you know, twenty percent of the world was under control of the con like super beings. Obviously that wasn't the case in the nineteen nineties. Yeah, I, uh, I don't remember that happening. On the flip side uh, the DS9 season three episode, Past Tense, came very close to reality in which uh, the 1999 Yankees were name-checked as one of the best uh, baseball teams of all time, missing by one year. And in the eighth year of the Trump presidency, we are hoarding the indigent into the sanctuary districts and just kind of shoving them outside and ignoring them. That seems very realistic to me. I don't think Star Trek will ever stop that. Right. But, um, yeah, it's I, I would definitely... Um, you know, I, I'd like to take a, um, I'd like to go forward. Like I said, I would, would have liked that anthology style with some of our, you know, to have the tie into the uh, more familiar characters, but with this ability with CBS All Access to have all these different shows going, I absolutely want to see them jump forward. I'm very excited about Discovery Season 3 to see how they handle the six-member federation in the 32nd uh, century. And uh, that's, you know, I'm really, that's kind of where I'm looking forward to with Star Trek. Yeah, I think that's going to be great. And uh, we can talk about that in a future episode because I really, because th- th- that ties into a previous um, Roddenberry project and drama. And I think it really, so I really want to talk about that because I, I think they're going to be copying something else Roddenberry had done for that third season. But yeah, for me, I just want a classic, the original series for Next Generation Jump. I want about 100 years in the future. I want it to be the, enterprise g or h maybe and i just want you know a brand new crew and you know 
maybe it's, you know, seems too on the nose, but, you know, throwing a couple Romulans on the bridge or, you know, just, or maybe the, the Klingons are a full member of the Federation, which is something apparently the next generation toyed with at first. When they first started the next generation, you have Worf on there and it's not explained. Are the Klingons a Federation member or not? But I would just go on and, you know, like they are now fully a member of the Federation. Well, and also like Enterprise forecasted that, the Klingons and the Zindi would eventually become members of the Federation. And, you know, this is, you know, that, that jumped at one point to the 26th century. You don't have to go all the way forward there, but you absolutely could do things like that. Yeah. Exactly. I would just a flat out, you do a hundred years in the future, you know, so then you can really play with, you know, next level technology, you know, like really go into the future when it comes to AI or virtual reality and like, or maybe like, cause maybe you know, the holodeck technology is so, advanced and just maybe like an entire hollow ship in terms of the way they interact with everything you know just re, you know like go with the holographic doctor and stuff like how, how that you know goes forward really go forward with those technologies and try to you know and try to deal with that because i would just love to see a flat out alien of the week you know mission of the week some story arcs but mostly just like an exploring like a new region of space you know that type of deal well and here's the other thing it might be time for star trek and the federation to leave the milky way galaxy there you go. That, I mean, I mean, we've seen all four four quadrants, so it would be a good way, you know, and, and that could be like maybe the ship and, you know, maybe that goes, that ties back into the original series, you know. The original series didn't have point-to-point -point contact with Earth and didn't have, you know, they, they were much more on the frontier and like less beholden to bureaucracy and maybe this new ship going outside the Milky Way would be that type of, you know, rogue voyager almost like, you know, traveling well and then, so that kind of reminds me he asked me like what kind of movie would i like to see so this is actually where i wanted them to go with star trek into darkness um i would have taken two movies to set it up i would have introduced gary mitchell or a similar character that was very close to kirk and then i would have done where no man has gone before yeah that is something i think would have played very well as a movie and it's you know, as much as I'm averse to Star Trek reusing material, I think that's something that you could set up like, you know, that, so that was the second pilot that they did. After. Yeah, it wasn't aired as the first episode, but it was right. the first one they made after the cage. Correct. And, you know, in and of itself, like that episode by itself with 50 minutes of setup was a gut punch with what happened to Gary Mitchell. It wasn't his fault. Now take somebody that you've spent a movie and a half building up as somebody people care about. Yeah, and and ha it's going to be a tragic turn, and not you know similar to I think where it looks like they're going with Scarlet Witch in uh, WandaVision and then Doctor Strange too, where it's like it's going to be a turn to villainy that where you still sympathize with the character and you don't fault them, and like I think they they could have set something up like that and not having these cardboard villains. Like I, I, again, I think that's where Star Trek really can shine out. And that's the, that's the beauty of a prequel is that you can build in these story, these seeds of a storyline because you, cause they've already been written. And like, it's a shame that they didn't have Gary Mitchell even be a minor character in one of the first three movies setting this up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, well, th thank you so much, Kevin. This was, uh, this, was a, this was a fun episode. I, I really like where we went there. So we've only really scratched the surface of Star Trek. So hopefully if you like Star Trek, I know that you have, all types of criticisms and critiques of what we've said and what we've done, because that is what Star Trek is. It is, a, is the most fanboy of universes. 
But uh, if you haven't, you know, really gotten into some of these the deep cuts in Star Trek, hopefully this is something that like uh, can be kind of your entry into what is a pretty intimidating series. But you know what I think? I think I want to leave it at is that you know, no matter when you enter into Star Trek from the show or the movies, they always do a really good job of explaining it to the novice. I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's Star Trek. It, it doesn't unlike some of its fans. Star Trek does not gatekeep. It is always tried to make itself accessible to the new, uh, the new viewer. And um, there's a lot of ways to get into it. And yeah, for somebody that hasn't yet, I hope you find one. Um, yeah, hopefully Lower Decks is that for a lot of people. You know, the Rick and Morty fan comes over. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. All right, cool. So uh, we would like to end this episode with an original song from the Star Trek-themed band Five Year Mission. Uh, you can go find out more about them at their website, which is fiveyearmission.net. And we will tag them uh, on our Instagram page when we release this episode. So they wrote an amazing theme song for the never-produced Assignment Earth spinoff in the style of classic 60s TV themes. The only question is, is it canon? Take a listen and let us know what you think. Thanks for listening to Canon Fodder. My name is Ed. And I'm Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, everybody. You've seen him on Star Trek. Now, witness the adventures of Gary Seven on his very own show. Assignment Earth, we just might make history. And on that case, the mysterious Gary Seven. Supervisor 194. Where he came from, no one knows. in Star Trek like we didn't even like there's so many crazy shit we didn't even get into well and it's also like even like we said hey we want to talk about time travel this is where we're going to work it in except we started working it in at an earlier segment and like we just had to like whip it through and it's yeah yeah like we're, we're our own retcon problem with all this stuff